0: This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello everyone, this is Pastor Ethan, and it's Sunday, August the 21st, 2022. Thank you for joining with me here at Trinity Church. Friends, today we begin our journey into the New Testament book of Colossians. Paul's letter to the young community of faith in the city of Colossa in Asia Minor, writing some 2,000 years ago. We are going to cover a lot today. My goal is to whet your interest, stir your appetite for what promises to be an incredibly rich meal. So strap in, gonna be a little bit of drinking from a fire hose today, to use one of my old favorite expressions. And we're gonna begin by going back just around 45 to 50 years to a story of the earlier days of my faith. A little personal story here. I want to tell you this story to help me set up a contrast. And you'll see where I go with that. But also because my story may in fact be very similar to your story. You know i grew up in the southern baptist church in central texas in a small town and even though this phrase has become really hopelessly politically compromised today the early context of my faith is what you would call conservative evangelical in some way this is likely the context many of you grew up in and likely are into to this day now what that used to mean was that your church held a very high view of scripture proclaimed the centrality of Christ, and took seriously the New Testament calling to be a witness to the gospel message in our world. Now, there's a lot more that went along with the evangelical culture, but really that was the core of it. When I remember and really consider and think about what it was like to grow up in the Southern Baptist Church, right? looking back on my, the earlier days of my faith, there are a few key tenets that really defined what we believed and how we lived or at least how we said we were supposed to live. And the first big tenet here, this first big idea, is that the Bible is the inspired, inherent Word of God as Scripture. Right. More practically, the Bible was God's clear, objective truth that contained no errors and no contradictions. But even more more specifically and practical than that, is that the Bible contained truth for life, truth for what we believed, and how we were to live. You could take any question about theology, ethics, morality, or for that matter, history. And if you look close enough and you understood scripture correctly, the answer was there. And this is key. The answer is something that you could know for certain, for certain, right? The idea of biblical certainty. Now. When it came to doctrine, for example, you could know for certain, right, because Scripture plainly taught it, the correct understanding about things such as forgiveness, salvation, the end times, hell, heaven, baptism, communion, you name it. Now, of course, we understood that there were denominations out there that understood and taught these things differently, but they were wrong, because our understanding was clearly, unquestionably, what the Bible taught. You also go to areas of ethics and morality. You know, We could know for certain, for example, because Scripture plainly taught it, that obedient Christians did not drink or dance. Right? If you didn't regularly tithe, meaning a 10% pre-tax offering to the church, well, you were being disobedient to God. Right? The idea that divorce was functionally unforgivable. If you were divorced, you could no longer serve in any position of ministry leadership, ever. You know, speaking of ministry leadership, especially pastoral leadership and the concept of what many churches call deacons, this was wholly restricted to men. For women to function in these roles was to be an active disobedience to God and Scripture. I could go on and give you many, many more examples. But the point is, these were ethical and moral understandings we held to be clear, black and white, and unquestionably the certain teaching of Scripture. And we could proclaim this certainty because Scripture was primarily seen as a book of doctrine. right? God's instruction book for life. And we were called and commanded to live in obedience to that doctrine, to that truth. Now, of course, we failed at it all the time. But as Christians, we were to do our best to live for Jesus, do our best to live out his teachings, his commandments to us. And now, going along with this, we had sayings and slogans. That developed over the years really cliches that went along with this understanding this approach to the Christian life you know some of them um, the one of the most famous was WWJD what would Jesus do right? You has got a question about what do I do here well what does the Bible say what would Jesus do how about this one how about the saying your life is God's gift to you and what you do with it is your gift to God right you know, I remember as a as a kid, as gro- growing up in youth group, being told something like, you know, pointing to the cross and the teacher saying, "Jesus did this for you. What are you willing to do for Him?" Or how about this phrase, "We are just sinners saved by grace." But what maybe stands out the most for me was the altar call rededication. Perhaps your church does this to this very day. There was an unsaid joke that went along with it, but it really accurately described this way of thinking. And it said, God is good, I am bad, and this week I'll try harder. This week I won't fail once again. (laughs) If you're anything like me, you know how that worked out time after time. And then, okay, after a life of doing your best, slogging it out in the frustration of trying to make the Christian life work, you would die and go to heaven. Or if we're really honest, the more important thing when we died was that we didn't go to hell. So let me just just recap that. Guys, I became a Christian when I heard the gospel. Understood it to some basic degree and made a personal choice to put my faith in Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior and entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, ensuring that I would go to heaven when I died. In the meantime, in life right now, okay, we have the Bible as a manual for spiritual doctrine and moral and ethical truth for how we were to live, right? Things we could know for certain. And our job was to live in obedience to the teaching of Scripture. And then in this approach to the Christian life, the big emphasis was on not sinning, the idea of sin avoidance, which really meant what we were thinking about all the time was sin. The idea of moral performance. And when we thought about this, it was really easy to focus on the moral performance of other people. And when we think that way, another emphasis would be that our identity, my identity was drawn from what we did for Jesus often leading to pride when we are very successful or shame when we would fail. And finally, the emphasis was on a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, church was important, no question, but the center of my Christian life was myself, my life, right? very, very highly individualistic. So, friends, hear me i am deeply thankful for my upbringing in the church and much of what i just described is rooted in scripture and some of it is good but as i moved into my mid to late 20s i was just hounded by this thought that something was missing i mean the bible teaches us how to live commands us to be obedient but what was missing was the power to be obedient the motivation and source of this new life that we are supposed to live. And guys, to cut to the chase, the something that was missing was the Holy Spirit, both the biblical truth and the present dynamic living reality of our union with Jesus Christ and the grace of God. And when I say Holy Spirit, what I'm talking about is nothing less than the literal living presence of Christ, the love of Christ, the fullness of Christ with us, in us, and through us as our source of identity and life right now in the midst of life as it really is. I mean, the first time I ever heard Galatians 2.20, at least that I that I remember, was after I graduated from college, and it was in a song that I heard at a church choir competition in Charleston, South Carolina. I mean, a worship competition. I mean, how evangelical is that? Now, you have probably heard or even memorized Galatians 2.20, but I would guess that few of you could call to mind right now Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. And my friends, Colossians 3, 1 through 4 is beautiful, it is powerful, and it is essential. But to take it a step further... Because the Holy Spirit is the presence of Christ in us. Paul uses those two two phrases, almost interchangeable. Christ in us and the Holy Spirit. Because of this, the great work and purpose of the Holy Spirit isn't just to lead us into more moral obedience according to our understanding of what what moral obedience looks like. That's important, but much more. The Holy Spirit is at work in us always for Christ in all of his nature, character, love, and purpose to be fully formed in us. Not just a model to imitate, but it's the very essence of who we are. And my friends, something that it took me a long time to grasp, a long time to wrap my head around, is that this miracle of life in Christ, of Christ as our life, It is a mystery. In fact, it is the mystery. And this mystery is a miracle that never contradicts God's truth, but it is far bigger than just mere doctrine. It is a mystery as big as the eternal, unfettered, and unlimited love of God. In Colossians 2, verse 2, Paul says, My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God namely Christ guess did you catch that paul desires that we and here in this case he's writing to this early this early group of believers that they may know the full understanding of the mystery because this mystery is something that in Christ has been revealed Just a few verses back in Colossians 1, verse 27, Paul says, To them, right to the church, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glorious riches of the mystery is that, friends, did you hear that? Is that Christ is in you. And this truth is the hope of God's glory. My friends, that message is the message of the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the early body of of believers in the city of Colossa. In his commentary on this book, N.T. Wright describes Colossians, while one of Paul's shorter letters, as perhaps the most exciting Um, Wright says, in his letter to this very young community of believers, Paul shares their sense of wonder as he encourages them to explore the treasures of the gospel and to order their lives accordingly. I love the way he says that. Wright goes on to describe Colossians not as just a mere collection of doctrines and principles, but as a flower. Think of this image, a flower growing from a small bud to a large bud and then gradually opening up to reveal layer upon layer the petals and beauty that had all along been hidden inside so church what i want to do now is to give just a little background information about this incredible text identify its key themes and set the stage for the journey that will begin in earnest next week so, setting the stage, a few important up, up matters. First of all, we have the matter of authorship. Who wrote Colossians? Well, you may say, well, of course, Paul did, I'd right? have said that many times. Well, that is true, but some biblical scholars over the years have challenged Paul's authorship of the letter for a variety of reasons. This could be a study in and of, in and of itself, and if Paul didn't write it, this doesn't necessarily detract from his message. However, there is strong evidence put forth by some of the leading theologians of our time that make a clear, but humble, clear case that Paul indeed was the author. Okay, so that's what we're going with. The author, Apostle Paul. Okay? When and where was Colossians written? Okay, Paul makes it clear that he wrote Colossians while he was imprisoned. But where was he imprisoned? When did this happen? When I did my wrap-up on the overall story of Acts about a month or so ago, I said that Colossians, along with Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon, was written around AD 62 while Paul was under house arrest in Rome. And that is, in fact, the prevailing opinion. However, a strong argument can also be made that Paul was briefly imprisoned while in Ephesus around the year 50-52, even though Luke makes no mention of this in Acts. You know, there's a few hints in 1st and 2nd Corinthians that Paul may have been in prison during his extended time in Ephesus. And there are several other factors that bolster that argument. I'm not going to go into those now. But I am, in fact, after doing more study, changing course. And I am placing Paul in Ephesus around the year 8052 when he writes Colossians. Now, that said, we cannot be certain of this, and the only reason, really, that it's important has to do with a matter of the letter's audience. Okay, so who was that? friends? the original audience, quite clearly, was the small but growing community of believers, the community of faith in Colossa. Now, we're going to talk more about this town next week, but just a few things right now. The church in Colossa was primarily made up of former pagans who would have worshipped, prior to their conversion, the gods of the Roman and Greek pantheon. Also, though, it very likely had Jewish converts. There was a small but significant Jewish community in Colossa, as there was throughout most of the towns and the cities of Asia Minor. Now, connected to the dating of the letter is that the church was young. I mean, not just brand new believers, but the entire gospel message was completely new, completely novel in Colossa and the surrounding region. And this is going to become very important as we move into the letter. Next, we have the matter of the purpose, the occasion of why Paul wrote the letter. The historic and predominant view is that Paul wrote Colossians to combat a specific danger within this young community of faith. False teachers were infiltrating the church, introducing and pushing questionable doctrines and practices, practices which demoted Christ from his position of preeminence. One way this has been described is the idea of Christ plus. It's great if you believe in Jesus, but to really be right with God, you also must believe or more specifically, do this set of extra things. And what these extra things were is up for debate. But the text does give us some detail. Right, A few theories here. One theory is that Paul is talking about that he's addressing a very early form of Gnosticism. Some of you may be familiar with that. It's actually unlikely. It's unlikely the case that this is what Paul was talking about here in the letter to the Colossians. Another theory is that this was a blend of Judaism with the, with the pagan and mystery religions that were known at that time in Asia Minor. Now this is a major view, and we'll discuss this more as we move into the text. But another view is one that is argued by N.T. Wright and other theologians, and it's the idea that the threat against the church was Judaism itself but the idea that these ex-pagan believers very young in their faith were being taught that having followed jesus the jewish messiah they now needed to complete the process and become fully jewish meaning circumcision and the adoption of the mosaic law but also importantly The adoption of the notion that your relationship with God was bound up in the nationalistic identity of the Jews. right? This equating of being right with God with being part of the nation of Israel. And my friends, there is a version of this distortion that is alive and well in Christianity today in relationship to America. We'll talk about that later. Now, Colossians, some central themes that we see. I'm just going to touch on these, but they're very, very important. First of all, in this book as a whole, we see the idea of the essentialness of the community of faith. Is essentialness a word? I think it is. Now, this sounds obvious, but Paul didn't write to a collection of individuals. He wrote to a church. He wrote to a community. In chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we read right at the top. He says, Paul... An apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, Timothy our brother, to God's holy people in Colossa, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ, grace and peace to you from God our Father. All right, he's writing to a group, a community of people. At the closing of the letter, in chapter 4, we see, Paul, that he intends for the letter to have been read aloud in the church gathering, to be heard, processed, and understood, again, as a gathered body of believers, as a community. Um, Chapter 4, verse 16 says this. Paul says, after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of of the Laodiceans, and that you, in turn, read the letter from Laodicea, which, of course, we don't have. That's my point, and we're going to explore this, is that essential to wrestling with, understanding, and applying this letter in our lives is to do so as an active, participating, relational part of a local community of faith. Very, very important. Okay, the next big thing that we see, and these are going to be, it's probably a phrase you're not familiar with, but is the idea of inaugurated eschatology. All right, that's a big-time seminary phrase, I know, but bear with me. As eschatology, in a very general sense, refers to the study of the end times and how all of Scripture points to this. You know, Something that is inaugurated is something that has fully come to pass, something that is in place. So simply put, in Colossians, Paul describes how the hope and the spiritual reality of what will fully come to pass in the end has actually already happened and is already here is already present in Christ in 1 Thessalonians 4 there's the famous statement where Paul says at the trumpet call of God the dead in Christ will rise first in Colossians Paul proclaims that in Christ we already have been risen we have already been raised to eternal life Colossians 3 1 it says, since then you have been raised with Christ, past tense, done deal, you have been raised with Christ. Because that is true, set your heart on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. You know, you may be familiar with the concept of already but not yet. Okay, In Colossians, the emphasis decidedly is on the already, what is already true of us in Christ. As believers, our hope is not in the the event of the second coming. Of course, that's our hope, but that's not our greatest hope. Our greatest hope is in a person, and that person is already here. Moving on, another big thing that we see is the believer's identity and freedom in Christ. Our identity, the most important thing about us, is not based on what we do. It's based upon who we are. Who we are as new creations in Christ. Out of Colossians 2, starting here in verse 6, Paul writes, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing in thankfulness. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness, and then when you go to chapter three, verses three and four, Paul says that our life is hidden, is inseparable from Christ and God, for Christ is your life. Yes, if you go back and read through that passage and all, all the, the the scripture that I'm walking us through right now, you can find this on the outline that I have online. Time and time again, we see the phrase in Christ, in Him, in Christ, our life is. Or rather, Christ is our life. Christ is your life. Huge, huge theme. Our identity in Christ. But moving on, another really big theme, especially in chapter 2, is the failure of religious and moral regulations. The failure of these to have any power to change a heart. That they have no power to bring transformation into our lives. Colossians 2, verses 20 through 23 says this. their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, rule-based sin management. (laughs) It has never worked, and it never will. Now out there, there's somebody right now who's probably saying, Ethan, are you saying it doesn't matter how we live? No, of course not. Far from it. Colossians shows us that the only way to actually experience true transformation in our nature and in our character is to recognize that we now, in Christ, have a new self. And rather than a focus on religious rules, Paul directs our focus to our new identity. In chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, we read, Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Big, big thing, but moving on. For next, in Colossians we see that the churches are called to live for the sake of the gospel. This is a big thing throughout all the New Testament, of course. But it's the idea that we... Disciples of Jesus, we are witnesses to the hope and truth of Jesus for all humanity. In other words, a primary lens through which we see the world is the question, are my actions, my words, my countenance, how I live, how I feel, think, and act and relate to people, am I opening a door, opening a door, or closing a door for people to see and understand who Jesus is and the hope that he brings? Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, we read, Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. In other words, be winsome. And then, friends, we have the great theme, the great theme of Colossians which is the absolute preeminence of Christ. You see, more than any other book in the New Testament, Colossians proclaims the absolute divinity, majesty, and supremacy of Jesus. The seminary word for this is Christology, how we understand who Jesus is, his role in God's plan. Colossians proclaims the highest Christology in all of Scripture. I'm going to read to you a little bigger section here. This is out of chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, where Paul absolutely just, just proclaims that the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Wow. Okay, friends, just bringing this, just coming back full circle. I started by saying that I wanted to paint a contrast, a contrast between the very common but incomplete picture of Christian faith and the miracle of the fullness in Christ that we see in Colossians. So, some things to consider as we begin this journey. So first of all, guys, on the one hand we have this idea of the certainty of doctrine, that we can know for sure exactly what the Bible says, okay, about any issue that we would have. But in contrast to that, right, or much bigger than that, we have the riches of the mystery of Christ, and this calls us into humility, right? Our faith is not a doctrine; our faith is in the person of Jesus. And for the person out there thinking, Ethan is saying that doctrine isn't important. That's not what I'm saying. But more important and much bigger is the mystery of Jesus. Ah, I can't wait to really delving into that with you. All right, another one. On the one hand, we have this huge emphasis on personal faith. In Colossians, we see the emphasis on the community of faith. The idea that the experience of faith is centered on myself, Versus faith in Christ being primarily experienced in community, in relationships with other believers. Right? The loving, living, breathing body of Christ that is the church. Right? Another one, okay? And this again, (laughs) I've got to figure out exactly how I'm going to talk to you about this. But we have this sense, this idea of a national faith identity. Right? The concept of Christian identity being anchored to being an American specifically being a politically conservative American, contrasted with our faith identity primarily being tied to the church, our identity anchored, again, in being a part of God's church, His community of faith, and the winsome presence of Christ in our culture. Another one, the idea of sin awareness versus Christ awareness. And our desire to be obedient is our focus primarily just on avoiding sin, or is it on the presence and the person of Jesus? You know, just flowing right out of that, we have the contrast between, on the one hand, just religious and moral rules, and on the other hand, the power of the new self, of a new identity. Right? Flowing out of that, the idea that, and, and again, this is what I grew up with, it's the, the, that our great hope is that we will be with Jesus when we die and go to heaven. Contrasted to the message of Colossians that we have already been raised and we are in union with Christ right now. This is the idea of what will be contrasted with the emphasis on what already is. And then finally, this idea that Christ died for us, which of course he did, but contrasted with the greater present reality that Christ lives in us and that is the hope of glory. Friends, some 20 years ago, I came upon a verse in the New Testament that changed the trajectory of my life. And I want to say to you, if you are still caught in trying to live the Christian life with an incomplete gospel, right? This statement in the incredible letter to the Colossians stands as an invitation into a bigger world, a freer life a new identity, and a glorious mystery. So my question is, as we prepare to begin this journey, is do you know the mystery? For to us God has chosen to make known among the people in our lives, our communities, and the world around us, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Friends, I love you. Thank you for tracking with me today. And I'll see you again next week as we begin chapter one.